today we have an article on the health-related concerns of the female athlete, a lifespan approach. This was written by Elizabeth Joy, MDMPH, Sonia Van Hala, MDMPH, and Leslie Cooper, MDMS. This is the third article in week two. This article is actually one in a series on sports medicine that was collaborated with the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. So, if you're a provider who has a solid female athlete population, look for more from these three authors within that series collaboration. So, this article focuses on different age group categories of female athletes and common health concerns within them. Those categories are going to be childhood, adolescence, adults, and older adults. They define childhood as 4 to 10 years old. One common concern is the age of beginning athletic training. I think everyone can agree that exercise offers significant physiological benefits, but the predisposition to injuries is a real cause for concern. Specifically, we're going to worry about the overuse injuries and the heat-related illnesses in our 4-10 to year old population. Heat-related injuries are more common in children and older adults as they're less able to regulate their thermoregulatory systems. Minor heat-related illnesses are going to include symptoms like lower extremity edema, cramps, muscle spasms, and syncope. This is combated with things like sodium replacement drinks, rehydration, laying down, and getting the child into a cooler environment. Now, heat exhaustion is going to be different. That's going to present in a multi-system manner. We're going to see things like general exhaustion, headache, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, vertigo, and general weakness. They'd also be likely experiencing things like tachycardia and sometimes even an elevation in core temperature to 100 to 104 degrees. Treatment is going to be similar with the minor heat illness and heat exhaustion. So minor heat illness and heat exhaustion are going to be treated regardless with those replacement drinks, rehydration, laying down, and cooler environments. Where we're really going to see changes in treatment strategies is going to be something called heat stroke. That's considered a medical emergency. Symptoms are going to include acute changes in an individual's mental status, along with a core body temperature that's greater than 104 degrees. Prompt diagnosis is essential in order to get this person into a rapid cooling environment, parenteral rehydration with dextrose, saline, and hospitalization. Children have a different physiological response to heat as their homeostatic mechanisms differ from adults. Children are less able to adapt to heat compared to adults. They're generating more metabolic heat during exercise. They have a slower acclimation response. They have a decreased sweating ability, and they have a higher surface area to body mass ratio. So it's important to realize that thirst isn't a sufficient indicator of hydration in children. That's due to their inappropriate response to heat. Prevention is going to be key for heat-related illnesses. The American Academy of Pediatrics and ACSM recommend increased mandatory water breaks, frequent substitution of players, and light-colored, lightweight clothing. So let's get into overuse injuries. These are common throughout all ages, and we've probably seen enough rotator cuff repair patients to prove it. We know they're associated with repetitive motions and inadequate rest periods, sudden changes in type or intensity of training, poor techniques, or faulty equipment, like bad sneakers. The muscle imbalance and susceptibility of growth cartilage to repetitive stress in children is a major factor for children. Pre-puberty, we should be thinking more about those growth plates and growth cartilage. You can see examples of this with things like Oshkosh-Slaughter disease, Sever disease, and Little League's elbow. If you're not familiar, Sever's disease is the calcaneal apophysitis. Treatment per this article is going to go into focusing on rest, ice, and rehab that may focus on alternative activities. So prevention is going to be key with these two. What are the training programs looking like for these children? Are they emphasizing global conditioning, flexibility, refraining from early sport specialization? 
Are they increasing activity by 10% per week or more? Is there a gradual and a progressive training as that's important? A common thing you see are pitch count restrictions for reduction of those overuse injuries. So strength and resistance training is a great complement to aerobic and sport-specific training. In a systematic review of strength training in pre- and early pubescent children, they noted that there was a significant decrease in injury rates, less than 0.2 over 100 participant hours. This systematic review they talked about in this article also showed no effect on higher weight in children. I know changes in growth rates with strength training is often a verbalized concern for these prepubescent children. Okay, on to adolescence. The age range for adolescence is considered age 11 to 17 in this article. While growth plate injuries are less common following puberty, we have to consider those overuse injuries to occur more in this population. Conditions we're going to look at in this age range are going to include overuse injuries such as patellofemoral pain, stress fractures, and other conditions such as the female athlete triad and ACL injury. We'll start with the overuse injuries and patellofemoral pain syndrome. These are the patients experiencing increased pain with stair climbing, uphill walking and running, and have complaints of anterior knee pain. Ortho people, please don't come after me. (laughs) We're being brief for brief sakes here. Um, Per this article, associated factors are going to include core and hip strength deficits and malalignment of the lower extremity. Treatment is going to be individualized to the patient-specific sport needs as well as how to return to activity, and we know this condition very rarely requires any type of surgical interventions. Moving on to stress fractures. These are due to repetitive loads that are exceeding the bone's ability to heal. So these are way more common in females versus males, but will occur in all sports. Common sites are going to be in the tibia, the tarsals, the metatarsals, and the femur. High-risk fractures are those that are going to occur in the femoral neck, the proximal fifth metatarsal, and the anterior cortex of the tibia. So sports medicine doctors and ortho subspecialists should be involved in those cases. We're going to address risk factors such as disordered eating, menses dysfunction, and other chronic medical conditions that could be affecting these patients' bone density. Most stress fractures are treated non-surgically, but this is going to be location-dependent. On to female athlete triad. If you haven't already, week two, article two is fully on this. So that's going to be much more in depth as this article includes only a paragraph within the article. The three components of this are going to include disordered eating, menses dysfunction, and bone mineral density loss. Female high school and collegiate athletes should be screened. I also want to point out that if females have only one or more risk factors, they should be referred to a specialist. This is a multidisciplinary team approach with a physician, nutritionist, and mental health provider as needed. These aren't conditions that are supposed to be managed by a coach. They're actually discouraged from participating in part of the treatment as they can be seen as a conflict of interest or added pressure. While they can help with identification of these factors... The end goal of these athletes is to remain training and competing, so it's important to note that if an athlete is 80% or below their ideal body weight, that can be considered unsafe for training. Electrolyte imbalances, anemia, hypotension, bradycardia, and syncope are all effects of disordered eating which can impact these players' performance. Menses dysfunction in athletes tend to present as amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea. Another interesting recommendation that I liked from this article was that if athletes are experiencing these prolonged menses disturbances, as listed above, for six or more months, they encourage a DEXA scan. They also recommend DEXA scans for athletes who have normal menses, but have two or more stress fractures. Last but certainly not least is ACL injury, probably the most common. (laughs) 
We know these are non-contact injuries associated with cutting, jumping, pivoting movements, and factors are multifactorial. We'd be looking at muscle imbalances of the lower extremity and the core, especially between the hamstring and the quads, malalignments, and hormonal influences. Surgical reconstruction is pretty typical, especially in those wanting to return to sport, and preventative training is key into tears and re-tears. We want to look at strength training, proprioceptive training, jumping, landing, and cutting techniques. So next up, we have the adult category, which is 18 to 49 years of age. We're still going to want to consider things like female athlete triad, as these individuals may be collegiate athletes or otherwise, as well as things like patellofemoral and ACL injuries. Two common concerns in adults that this article specifies includes pregnancy and pelvic floor dysfunction. For pregnancy, ACOG has published guidelines for exercise during pregnancy. We touched on this a bit during the VO2 max article as well, but let's just tap back into those ACOG guidelines to remember them because repetition helps me learn too. So for duration and frequency, ACOG is going to recommend 30 minutes per day of moderate exercise on most days of the week. Intensity is at least moderate activity. This would be rated at a 12 to a 14 on the 20-point Borg scale or a 6 on the 10-point scale. Remember to encourage a more thermoneutral environment. We don't want any heat stress occurring. As well as remember to consider exercise expenditure that should match energy intake if you have some pregnant patients who aren't eating a lot due to nausea, etc. For progression, they recommended that sedentary women prior to pregnancy should consider ramping up to those 30 minutes of moderate exercise. Types of exercise can be more aerobic in nature and utilizing larger muscle groups, trying to avoid things that can increase risk for falls like skiing or increasing joint stress like running or tennis. They also noted these can and should be evaluated on a person-to-person basis. For activities to avoid, we're going to recommend avoiding scuba diving due to fetal decompression sickness, although I have yet to pull that one out. I guess it's just ready for when I need to. Um, We're also avoiding really heavy resistance training that could result in a large pressure effect. They don't go any further into this. We can imagine that this is going to be person to person and individualized to what they're considering heavy, and I'm sure blood pressure is going to be a factor. We know that regular exercise is great for pregnant individuals to combat excessive weight gain, gestational diabetes, and preeclampsia. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about high-level athletes in pregnancy since there aren't a lot of studies on that. The National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, recently updated its recommendations on pregnant women, participation in college sports, and guidelines for returning to sports, scholarship protection, etc. Just recognize that this article was in 2009, so when they say there was an update, there may have been a few updates on this. The article doesn't go any further into those guidelines. If you have an express interest in that, though, know that it's there for a resource if you want to do a quick Google search under the NCAA Guidelines for Pregnancy and Return to Sport. On to pelvic floor dysfunction. 47% of women who regularly exercise report some degree of urinary incontinence, the mean age being 38.5 years. That's one in two people who need any more emphasis to recognize how high that is. High impact exercise is going to produce more of those episodes compared to our lower impact exercises. And as we know, women are going to adjust their exercise so that they don't leak. In one study looking at 156 Neloparis athletes with an average age of 20, 28% experienced urinary incontinence during their sport. That's one in three, if anybody needs any more emphasis. Jumping, running, and high impact 
tend to lead to the most urinary incontinence. And while mechanical interventions are helpful, this randomized control study noted that using a tampon or a pessary with exercise also helped. From a pressure management system standpoint, I'm sure that we can all agree on why that would be. Moving on to older adults. Falls are going to be the highest concern for older adults, especially women. Avoiding hip fractures is critical given the high association of morbidity and mortality. Something that sticks with me on conditioning for older adults is that the exercise closest related to mortality is the ankle pump. Not in a literal sense, but in the sense that conditioning and strengthening for older adults is imperative. So not just doing light and seated exercise. I can't remember who to give credit for that to. I think a friend of mine went to a barbell rehab course for older adults, but I love that statement because it's so true. I think we tend to underdose our older populations. Studies suggest that exercise that has strength, flexibility, and balance focus can actually decrease or even reverse physiologic changes associated with aging through exercise training. That's a pretty good selling point to patients if you need one. So this study even mentioned that a PT consult is a great starting point for older female adults and managing fall risk. Okay. So really great article. I always appreciate everyone's subscription to the show, downloading and listening to the podcast. So if I haven't already said it on an episode, thank you for subscribing and downloading. It means a lot to me. All right. So next up, it looks like we're starting our crusade on the ACL ligament injuries. We're going to start with Hewitt in 2005 with the biomechanical measures of neuromuscular control and valgus loading of the knee, predicting ACL injury risk in female athletes. Um, And there's a couple by Hewitt in this week. So I hope to see you guys listening there. Bye. Bye.